So we're back in Hebrews 13 this morning. Um, Would you hold your place there and go to Romans 12? Hold your place in Hebrews 13 and go to Romans 12, verse 1. Because we know as we finished Hebrews 12, we were introduced to acceptable worship. And in the evening that we looked at, the evening of the morning that we looked at Hebrews 12, at the end of Hebrews 12 and saw the idea of acceptable worship, that evening we looked at Romans 12, which I'm sure all of you had going through your mind, uh, to verses 1 through 3 which helped define a little bit more of what it looks like to have acceptable worship before God or to practice acceptable worship before God. And I just want to read these three verses before we continue. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Excuse me, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your body, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, one thing we understood as we thought about acceptable worship of God, we thought, okay, we 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 seek to worship God acceptably on Sunday mornings, even Sunday evenings. But we also must understand, but our acceptable worship of God is a life to God, for God. A Christian is called to live. To live, a Christian is transformed to live a life that is understood as worship to God. Sacrifice, submission, sacred. As Christians, we're laying ourselves on the altar of God. You know what that means? What is laid upon an altar in the Old Testament? Which means they have been what? Killed. Giving up our lives, ourselves upon the altar of God. A living sacrifice would be a continually offering ourselves to God on the altar. It's submitting ourselves in obedience to his word that we might be conformed to him. Godliness, holiness. And, you know, the thing we might consider when we think about, and sorry, this is just a bit of introduction to where we're going with marriage, we might ask ourselves or ponder, but how do I know how I ought to live? What is good? What is acceptable? What do I need to do to understand this? Well, you must take up the book and read. The Word of God defines the acceptability of your life. If you want to be shaped You must be transformed by the word, molded by the scriptures, molded by God's word 
himself and what are you molded into? You're molded into the shape of its author, God. For it is his word. And we as Christians have gotten to a point in totality where we feel as if we can call ourselves Christians and live lives as Christians, live lives that are acceptable to God without taking serious the word of God. I'm going to say that again. We claim as Christians, we say we will live acceptable to God as Christians, but we do not take serious the only thing that will shape us and transform us to live lives acceptable to God. And we might say, I just don't like to read. Or I don't have time. Well, we all have time. And if you don't like to read, me and Mike can show you an app that reads it to you, right? We cannot let excuses undermine the seriousness of the Word of God. If you're not being transformed by the Word of God, you are being conformed to the world. Now this is going to be very key in our understanding of what we're going to talk about today and next Sunday, Lord willing. Because we have to understand there are only two paths. Only two roads. One to life, one to death. One to wickedness, one to righteousness. And on the one, we follow Christ. The only way to life and righteousness When upon the path, the only way to survive and stay upon that path is by partaking of the food delivered to you. The word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. Think about that. Think about how much you need food. And Jesus himself says, that ain't enough for the life that we are called to live. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. If you are on the path of righteousness following Christ, or at least you say you are, you will realize that if you are not consuming the word of God, you will starve and die. It is the bread of life pointing us To Christ. And apart from him. You will die. To cut yourself off from the word of God. Is to cut you off from the word made flesh. Christ himself. You need the word of God like you need food. You need the word of God to be a lamp unto your feet. And a light unto your path. Because if not you will stumble and fall. But I also want you to understand in contrast, on the other path, if you are on the other path, you are fed lies. Because you're following the father of lies. You're on the path that confuses you, that deceives you. And it is the path to hell. And we might think, Luke, I'm here, right? 
I'm sitting here today. I've been baptized, right? I know Jesus is the Son of God, right? And so do the demons. You read through the Gospels and Jesus comes up to uh, a demon and what do they call him? Oh, Holy One of God. They know who he is. But yet it does not bring them life. The point that I want us to understand the point that Hebrews from 10, the middle of 10 onward has been this. Jesus isn't your get out of hell free card. Jesus gives you access to the presence of God. He gives you a way to the throne room of grace. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's been the point for weeks. That in Christ we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. To draw near to God. And we enter that path through that door, Christ, by faith. And we continue down that path. Listening to Him, right? Not neglecting the words of Christ. Because the words of Christ shape our minds. And they direct our path. They teach us the life of acceptable worship to God who is a consuming fire. Now, the thing I've just described to you, and I've described to you many times, is known as a Christian worldview. A view of the world that is shaped by Scripture. Let me read you this paragraph. I stole it from an article, a trusted source. What is a worldview? Everyone's got one. Let me just say that. Everyone's got a way that they look through the world. Can you make sure that microphone's turned on back there? Everyone has a worldview. Here's what a worldview is. As the word itself suggests, a worldview is an overall view of the world. Pretty self-explanatory. It's not a physical view of the world, but rather a philosophical view. An all-encompassing perspective on everything everything that exists and matters to us or to life. A person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe he inhabits. It reflects how he would answer all the big questions of human existence. Fundamental questions about who and what we are, where we come from, why we're here, where, if anywhere, we're headed. The meaning and purpose of life, the nature of the afterlife, and what counts as a good life here and now. And every time beloved that we read the scriptures or we hear them preached or we sing them we meditate on them our view of the world needs to be transformed as we hear as the word of god comes to you it should be putting on it should be focusing in your view of the world as seen through the lenses of scripture That is how we ought to view the world, through the lenses of Scripture. And sometimes we get verses that are really straightforward and obvious about this, like today and also like next week. 
The themes of the next two weeks are going to be marriage, sex, and money. That very much is in the world. And we very much need to have a worldview. There are not many topics in life that are more flammable than those. Kingdoms have been built and fallen on those three things. People have lost their lives because of those three things. Families have been built and destroyed on those three things. And without any irony or coincidence, those three things are very much taught about in the scriptures. And so we must see them and understand them through the wisdom and commands that God has given us in his word. These these areas, these teachings must shape, number one, our personal involvement in these things. But also, it should shape our understanding in a broader sense as society deals with these things. So this week, it's marriage and the marriage bed. There will be some awkwardness to it. I I, I, I'll admit that. And next week when we talk about money and wealth and the love of money, there might be there some too. But this morning, as we make our way to Hebrews 13, it is one verse, verse 4. And again, the topic is marriage and the marriage bed. The verse is broken up into three sections, three phrases, and that's how we'll approach it this morning. Number one, marriage in itself and how we honor it. Number two, the marriage bed and what it means to defile it. And number three, God's judgment. And throughout those three, we'll ask questions, we'll find implications and applications. So I want you to understand that our goal, our hope is that our understanding of marriage and the marriage bed as seen in the world, our viewpoint of it, our understanding of it, our living it out, it will be shaped by the Word of God. And so, number one, he starts and says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. All. Well, in order to honor something, we first have to know what it is, right? So, you might say, well, I'm married, I know what marriage is. Well, I, I, that's, that's the deception we have to make sure we watch out for. Just because you know of something doesn't mean you know it as defined by the Word of God. We can't just say we've experienced it or we've been told about it. We must make sure that we know it from Scripture. From God's perspective. So how does God define marriage? I think there's a, a, a statement made by Moses as he wrote God's word in Genesis. By Jesus as he quoted those words. And then Paul who also quoted this same statement. And this is what I think is a good definition of marriage. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we're going to break that apart into two things. I'm not going to really dive into this. We're going to spend more time in looking at um, why it's honorable, why marriage is honorable, and how we ought to honor it. But again, we first we must understand what it is we're honoring. Two parts. Two parts that establish a marriage. Covenant commitment, number one, and consummation. Those two things in that text establish marriage. Covenant commitment, which I'll probably just refer to as covenant, and then consummation. One aspect is public. The other aspect is private. Think about it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the public Declaration that the man and the woman are covenanting to commit together. That's, I got my words all mixed up. They're committing through covenant to one another. Till when? Till death do us part. That is known and made known. We see it made known in vows and ceremonies today. But then the other aspect is then in private. When the couple comes together and completes that vow, seals that vow in consummation in the wedding or in the marriage bed. And yes, those two are absolutely necessary, and you'll see why. And yes, the order is absolutely necessary, and you'll see why in a little bit. Both elements are necessary, covenant commitment and consummation to define true marriage. Now, why honor it? Why honor marriage? Because it's we're told to honor marriage. Here's why. God has blessed us with marriage for his glory and our good. God has blessed marriage. God has blessed us with marriage for his glory and our good. So there's two aspects to that. His glory and our good. And there's two ways... That God is glorified in marriage. Now there's many more, but there's two I want to focus on today, and I think two that are the largest, and two we see most in Scripture. I'm going to give you both of them and then explain them a little bit. Number one, to accomplish His purpose throughout creation. And number two, to reflect His covenantal love. To to accomplish His purpose and to reflect His love. Okay, so think about this. Number one, to accomplish His purpose in creation. God created Everything. Everything we see he has created. But the last of creation was his crowning jewel. Man and woman. Male and female. And all of his creation, of all of his creation, did only these two creatures bear his image. Therefore, nothing in creation was like the man and the woman, because nothing in creation was like God. But man and woman were made, in some sense, like their creator. God's first command to his first creatures, or his crowning jewels, was to be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply. To fill the earth and subdue it. 
And God in his infinite wisdom and power made them male and female in such a sacred way that in their coming together, in their union, in their union would be the mechanism of how that multiplication, filling the earth and and, uh, subduing would take place. In the union of these two, the man and the woman, and what we call marriage, comes forth image bearers, comes forth the glory of God. And these image bearers were to be nurtured and cultivated, and they were to spread abroad the earth, and therefore the image of God would spread across the earth, and the glory of God would fill the earth. And increase throughout his creation. All of this through the coming together of the one man and the one woman. So there's a purpose that God is accomplishing through marriage. Now the second is to reflect his covenantal love. As you search through the scriptures past Genesis 2, you start to understand that the story that is unfolding is God's redemption of his creatures. God putting himself into relationship with man. And as you go through Genesis to Revelation, you understand that that relationship that God makes with man is defined by his covenanting with them. He covenants with them and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so we see passages like these that help us understand what it looks like or is like to covenant with God. In Leviticus 26, he says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply and you will or, um, multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. In Exodus 2, it says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Psalm 106, he says, For their sake he remembered his covenant that he had made with them and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And my favorite, Deuteronomy 7, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What do we see about God's view of covenant? Words like love, steadfast, remembering. All implying what? Faithfulness. God's faithfulness. But one more characteristic that comes across when we study covenants, and especially as we break into the new covenant, and that's the idea of an eternal, everlasting covenant, which would be really handy if the one who is making that eternal, everlasting covenant is what? Faithful. Faithful. And Isaiah, you can turn with me if you like, in 54 we see language of marriage in describing a covenant God is going to make Israel, I'm sorry, Isaiah 54. Remembering as we look through this that 
Marriage is a way of reflecting God's covenantal love. Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 4. Fear not, for you will... Verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, but be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast out, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. And overflowing anger for a moment I will hide my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Says the Lord, your Redeemer. God gave us marriage to remind us of his everlasting compassion for his people. Now look at Isaiah 62. Verse 4 and 5. The new new covenant of God in Jesus Christ is seen as a marriage. Christians known as the bride and God, specifically the Son of God, known as the bridegroom. And in Isaiah 62, we get a taste of this, verse 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and, you shall, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now finally, Ephesians 5 verse 31, I believe. Make our way back to the New Testament, Ephesians 5. Passage we covered uh, quite well a while back. You can spend time through 22 and 22 through 33 and take in the fullness of this imagery. But understand, as we start in verse 25, and we think about the love of God through Jesus Christ to the church, His people, and how it is to reflect the covenantal love of God. Excuse me, reflect marriage. 25 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church or wife, might be a whole might, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Here it is. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage 
is a picture of Christ's eternal union with the bride, his church. A man and woman become one in marriage, so Christ and his body, his bride, have become one. Your marriage is to reflect the love of Christ and his bride. So we look at marriage, one man, one woman coming together, becoming one flesh. And through the consummation of that marriage, in the marriage bed, the result is the creation of new image bearers. But we also see in that covenant commitment of husband and wife a picture of God's covenantal love towards his people through Jesus Christ. Marriage is for the glory of God. But I said, and I'm just going to go through this quickly. When God does something or creates something for his glory, for his people to follow and be obedient to that, it will be for your good as well. I stole this. I will be very upfront about this. I stole this this uh, this week from a sermon that I had heard that was a great help in thinking about why God gave us marriage for our good. All from Matthew or all from Genesis two. Here are four reasons why marriage is for our good. Number one, deep companionship it is not good that man should be alone. Imagine or consider the the bond and union you have with one person. How precious is that you can have companionship as deep with that one person. Marriage is for deep companionship. Marriage is for mutual enjoyment. Mutual enjoyment. The world says dog is man's best friend. I say no, his wife is. Mutual enjoyment. Number three, shared activity. A helper fit for him, right? Shared activity. Number four, covenant commitment. All the above, deep companionship, mutual enjoyment, shared activity. For how long? Till death do us part. There's only one relationship on this earth that you find that in, and that is in your spouse. So, marriage is to be honored. How do you honor it? Well, number one, you you do not put societal issues before your own marriage. What do I mean by that? Don't take up in the streets having all this hoopla about same-sex marriage while you are neglecting your own. Clean your house first. Look to your marriage, men. Prioritize personal before societal. Number two, understand understand and pursue biblical marriage. What we have just said, that worldview of marriage, let it shape your understanding of marriage. The world's way is to tell you that marriage is self-focused and they don't want to admit it, but their way is actually easier because it's much easier to live for self. But when you're shaped and your worldview of marriage is focused by God's word, you understand that marriage comes with a price. Just as following Christ comes with a price. And what is it? 
Selflessness. That is the cost of marriage. The cost to have deep companionship, mutual enjoyment, shared activity, and a lifelong commitment comes to a denial of yourself. It's the hardest way, but it's the best way. It's the most joyful way. It's it's just mimicking following Christ, our bridegroom. We must understand also as we think through a biblical understanding of marriage, and if we are not shaped by the word of God and pursue biblical marriage, we understand that there are generational consequences. Men, a man and a wife, could live together for 65 years and in their union ruin their children and their grandchildren because they held together for something other than what God said is marriage. We can look. You know it. You can look at your own lives, the lives around you, and see that just because they made it to the end did not mean that they held marriage in a biblical view and practiced it and lived it out and shaped the lives of their children and grandchildren. And if you... And hey... That's a daily reminder to us as parents and grandparents. We must conform to the scriptures so that we might be better husbands and wives and moms and dads. Because there are generational effects on how we go about marriage. Now I want you to also understand that your marriage and your family has a greater effect on culture than your vote does. I'm going to say that again. Your marriage and your family will have a greater impact on culture and the people around you than your vote does or your Facebook posts. I'm not saying that those aren't important. I'm saying you prioritize your personal life, your marriage. You raise, you love your wife, you love your husband. As you are called to in Ephesians 5 and you raised your kids under that, you change the world. It might take years. It might take decades. It might take centuries. And you're like, well, Jesus is coming back real soon. He might. And he might not. Do not neglect today. Knowing that what we do today can have an effect on a hundred years from now. And you neglect today because you don't think there'll be a tomorrow. And you might wake up tomorrow and be wrong. Be ready, but don't be found not working. Let's talk about society for just a second. Because if we look around, we know it's a mess when it comes to these topics. Here's what we have to understand. Love is not always good. Love is not always good. 
society, our culture, is trying to promote, reimagine, change biblical marriage with the word love. And it's, it's tricky because that word describes God. God is love. So what do we do with that? We have to understand that there is good love and there is bad love. Turn to 1 John, chapter 1. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10. First John chapter 2 verse 10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes and so love is good and right and we spent a whole sermon on it last week right brotherly love but Look at verse 15 Do not love the world. God says don't love. In verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Christian worldview. Shaped by scripture. We must understand God's will. What is good and acceptable. We must be shaped by the truth and we must understand when it is right to love or what good love is and what bad love is when it's wrong to love. The entire argument for same-sex marriage is built around love. How can you deny a right for a person to marry the one they love? I want you to know, if you live long enough to work through this Movement, this thing that's going on in culture, if you are not grounded in a biblical worldview, you will cave to that answer. You will give up. You will give in. If you are not molded and shaped by the truth of Scripture, I was listening to a debate on this very thing. Is this is 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 same-sex marriage good for the culture? And the Christian was getting pelted by his opponent and by the crowd. And finally, I was just sitting there waiting, I was like, He was trying his best to make an argument because that's what it was. He's trying to be a good debater that he could make a societal argument against same-sex marriage. And finally, he was just like, but it's against God. You can't, you can't, you, if you're unwilling to stand on the word, you will cave. And I don't mean that in the sense that you won't be loving or you'll be hateful. I mean, you will join them. You'll be a Romans 1 all over again. Not that you're not necessarily doing it, but you give approval to it. 
You've got to be ready. You've got to be shaped and on guard. You've got to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You cannot fear man. And you must take the Great Commission seriously. Teach your kids, your grandkids, whether they're 4 or 40, you can. They might not listen, but we must teach who we can teach. We're not just baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we're teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach who we can teach the Word of God so that marriage can be honored and God can be glorified. Now, I'm at a point that if I go, i got to keep going. It's kind of like if I hit the waterfall, there ain't no stopping. So I'm trying to decide if we're going to go ahead and veer off or not. Let's do that. Let's pause. Let's come back together next Sunday and finish this. Because what I want you to understand, one thing I want you to think about... Let's just look at the rest of the verse. And I want to put these two words in your mind. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Here's where I want to back up and say... God will judge not just the sexually immoral and the adulterous, but those are two code words for faithless and unholy. God will judge the faithless and the unholy. And it doesn't take an act of sexual immorality or infidelity to make you faithless and unholy. Your greed can do that. Your gossiping lifestyle can do that. Your idolizing the things of this world can do that. Your disobedience to parents can do that. So I want to I want to I want to plead with you today to not be found faithless and unholy but be found in Christ by faith transformed and seen as holy in the sight of God because God will judge and he is in a consuming fire So ask yourself this morning, are you following Christ? He's speaking 
he spoke, are you taking his words seriously? I know you love your spouse, husband and wife. And I know that because you listen to them. The question is, is do you love Christ? And you say, how do I know? Well, do you listen to him? By faith, do you heed his words and follow him no matter where it takes you, no matter where it leads? You must come to Christ, be conformed by his blood and his righteousness, be made holy and escape the wrath of God. Pray with me. Father, you know our hearts. You know our marriages. You know if there is faith in us. And so I plead with you in this moment that the presence of your spirit would come like a raging wind and fire. That your spirit would consume the unholiness that is within us. That would bring about faith in the faithless. And that would resurrect the dead who are in this place. Draw us nearer to your son. Some for the first time and and others for the umpteenth time as we seek to be more like him. Shape our eyes and our minds. And may it begin with our submission to the Lord Jesus at the foot of the cross. And be reminded that we too have been raised from the dead to walk in a new life. But in the same world. So it is our prayer, Lord, that you will renew our minds, that we might know what is your will, what is good and acceptable. And we give thanks that that is possible because of the blood, the cross of Christ, and that he is no longer in the, in the grave. But he is our risen Lord, our God, our Savior. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Now, because I cut it short, we're going to sing two songs. <laughs> You think I'm joking? Number 98. Let's stand and sing. Let us sing to the Lord our song. Let this let this time always be our our time of response to the word of God. For in the word of in the word of the cross is power to those who are being saved. But to those who are perishing Number 98, my worth is not in what I own. Look down to verse 5. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid. Only at the cross. Yeah, verse 5.
my value fixed, my ransom paid at the Out of 380. Okay. I thought you were joking. We, were not. we must end on declaring our love for our Lord Jesus Christ. already, but we've fixed the dates on the back of the bulletin. Um, I I won't keep us any longer. You can take that home and see all that there. I do want to say, though, the the Sunday after, I meant to say this last Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, which is the 16th, we're having another opportunity for a new members class. We throw those out there every quarter, and if, if there's a bite, we do one, and if there's not, we don't. Well, we've got a bite, and so we're going to have a new members class uh, starting the 16th, and it will run four weeks. Um, so just know that, and I'll have a sign-up sheet uh, until then for anybody else interested in a new member's class. With all that, um, let me read our benediction and ask the Lord to bless our food and close us this morning uh, in First John. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray. Father, may your word not come back void to you. May you uh, plow up the hearts of all who are here. And plant your word that fruit might come forth for your glory. Thank you for your provision and 
giving to us an opportunity to break bread together. May you bless it for our good and again your glory. For you are the reason we come together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you.